Scott. Scott Menez. And he goes, guess where Connor is? Connor's in the stadium. Connor's up in San Francisco. Uh, he's going to make his start today, his first start in the major leagues. Uh, For the San Francisco Giants, this is huge. I'm a lifelong Giants fan. My grandparents grew up within eyesight of Candlestick Park. Uh, it's a part of my growing up. Uh, it's really amazing to me. Uh, I remember when he called. Uh, stop. So um, he called me on draft day. Uh, he was in my youth group, so I consider him like my kid, which, by the way, and I think a lot of the kids who, who had the blessing... Of, of being in, in the youth ministry God was so good to give, give to me. Uh, they all know I call them kids. A lot of them are parents now through like 25 years of, of ministry. But anyways, he called me and goes, hey, I was drafted. And I figured that was coming. I kind of knew that. He goes, I'm a giant. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I think uh, some weird just kind of <laughs> something happened uh, that day. So anyways, can I just let you know, we're Grace Bible Church I'm a little distracted, and I have tickets. Um, I saw his first start in San Jose in, in A-ball. We didn't get to go to Richmond, Virginia. I mean, come on, who gets to do that for his first start in Double uh, um, uh, A? We saw his first start in Triple A, and so I want to keep the streak alive. And Scott and Gene are super excited. Um, the Giants were good to them. They were on a plane this morning. They got to fly first class. And uh, Colton and uh, Becky, his new wife, are, are there also. So it's an exciting day. And um, so I'm going to preach, and we're not going to do disservice to God this morning. We, I have a message, and I have a, a sermon. It's all there. And uh, I just, those of you who know me, I'm distracted on a good day. That's right. So um, I just want to just let you know that that's going on. If you see me, you know, hop off the stairs and quickly give the mic there. It's not that I don't love you. It's just that we, we are going to get on up there as quick as we can. We're excited. And I know you'd understand. In fact, Maxine asked why I wasn't wearing my Giants jersey right now. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, uh, maybe I should have. But uh, it's anyways, it's good to be here. Let's pray and we'll get into, into God's word. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, you're so good. I just thank you. Uh, for those of us who, who are here this morning who just had the blessing to sing your gospel, Lord, it really is a time when we come and sing together that we get to proclaim as one voice the truth of our salvation, the truth of the beautifulness of our Savior, the goodness of your grace, and Lord, the truth that when we come to you, we come empty-handed, we have nothing to offer. Oh, but you've given us everything through Jesus and that's the lens that you view us through. So, Father, our worship and our praise truly belongs to you. And so this morning, may we continue with a heart of worship and a heart of, of thankfulness as we look into your word. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, you know when like, you find out that you're getting one week or two weeks, you've heard me say this before, uh, I bite off more than I can chew. And I said, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start the Sermon on the Mount. I'm laughing at myself. I'm laughing at myself now as I get there. And we're going to do the Beatitudes. And then as I started preparing and doing that, I'm like, we're not even going to hardly get an introduction done because there's so much here. So I figured something out, and maybe I'm not that bright, or maybe I am bright, or maybe it's the Holy Spirit. 
I'm just going to go with it. I think what's going to happen now is every time until we're done with it, when I get to fill in uh, in the pulpit here, we are going to go through the Beatitudes till we get done, unless it's like Christmas Sunday, right? Then, then we're going to make sure something fits with the season or the time that we're in. But uh, over the next months to I, hopefully years, because I really enjoy Pastor John more than I enjoy my own voice, and, um, but as we do this, we're going to go through the Beatitudes. And uh, I want to start off with a question again, as I ask this question, or as we talk about this, keep in mind my background in youth ministry, but I want to take you back to the 1990s. I don't know if you remember this or not, but I was thinking about uh, imposters, people who are fake, people who have every appearance of being something, but in reality, the appearance fits perfectly but the truth of the matter is it has nothing to do with what they're pretending to be. And back in 1990, there was a group, a band called Millie Vanilli. And back in 1990, Millie Vanilli, I know, silly name, where it comes from, I don't know, but it worked. They were one of the biggest bands on the planet. The band was made up of two members, one named Rob and one named Fab. Their debut album went six times platinum, so it sold a ton back when people bought albums instead of songs. It had multiple number one singles, and they were the Grammy Award winner for Best New Artist in 1990. In one interview, Rob interviewed, uh, and it called himself the new Elvis, and things couldn't be better for this band until one live event the recording of their vocals jammed and skipped. And it started going over and over, like a, remember when we used to play records and the needle would get stuck? This happened to them as they were performing. If you've ever seen the video of this concert, it's the classic during the headlights moment. They panicked and they ran off the stage. And soon after, the LA Times got all over this and they broke the story that Millie Vanilli, the two front men of the group, had not sang one single note of the recordings or of the concerts. They lost their Grammy. Fans were offered refunds for their albums and their concerts and it actually ended in tragedy when one of the members died of an overdose, possibly taking his own life. You see, if you looked at this group, they were extremely popular. People dressed like them. They had all the dance moves. They sounded great, but it was not them. You see, this fake band was able to fool the musical world. Why? Because they looked the part. They danced the part. They dressed the part, part. They acted like pop stars acted in the 90s. Yet none of it was real. Why do I bring this up? Here's why. All too often, I think it's easy to be a cultural Christian. And really, in today's world, it's not very difficult to be given the status of being a Christian. And it matters not whether a person truly is born again or not. See, the process of becoming or identifying yourself as a Christian in our modern society and oftentimes throughout history has become essentially cultural. What I'm saying is this, if a person practices a proper display of religiosity or religious or Christian traits, they're accepted. 
here's a couple examples of what I'm thinking about. Vocabulary. It sometimes seems like cultural Christianity has a set of passwords. You know what I mean by that? Have you ever had a conversation with someone, maybe you just met them, you're on vacation, or you're in the line at the store, and you, you, eh, there seems something a little bit different about them, and uh, then maybe one of those magic words is thrown into the conversation. You're like, I wonder if they're a Christian. Or we maybe start assuming it. Words like fellowship, brother, sister, blessed, victory, other words like that. If a person uses these words in the right tone or in the right context, we oftentimes just assume you're in the club. You're in. They must be Christian. Social attitudes. Having the same likes and dislikes will go a long way in a Christian slash religious culture. Oftentimes, if I'm honest, especially having the same dislikes, a common enemy. People love to unite around a common societal enemy. So sometimes if someone adopts the same political or societal mindset that is often discussed in Christian circles, if you want to do that, you can often pass yourself off as fitting right in. Heritage. Many of us have been blessed with Christian parents who are true followers of Christ. But sadly, some of us here today were raised in cultures that, uh, and by God's grace, I wasn't. My parents loved Jesus, and I'm so thankful for that. And they brought us up to love God's word and to love him. But sometimes there's a heritage of church culture. You just shut down. Sunday's church. Whether you believe it or not, you go to church. Why? Because my neighbors go to church. We all go to church. And all too often, we just assume that if you have Christ-following parents, it equals Christ-following children. What's sobering and scary on this is actually, sometimes we place great faith in our parenting. And I include myself in this. Hey, let's protect our kids. We'll be church-going. We're going to shield them from cultural things that we don't like. And we're going to do the right things, and our kids should just naturally toe the line and fall in place. Look, I was a church kid for 17 years. Actually, I was a church kid my whole life. I knew what to say. I actually went to Christian school too. I knew the verses. I knew what to say. I could write the papers. I memorized the verse. I got the stars on the chart. I had it. I knew what to do, and I did it well. But yeah, God was so good. And it's sometimes... Uh, amazing to me. It's the amazing grace that God was so good to reveal to me a good kid in the world's eyes that I was wicked and in need of a savior. Bible knowledge doesn't save. Faith in Christ saves. And I think oftentimes when we're blessed, because don't hear me wrong, it is a blessing to be raised in a Christian environment. It's a blessing to be in a Christian home. It's wonderful, and it's good. But don't put your faith in what you know. We put our faith in Christ. All of us are in desperate need of a Savior. All of us are indeed, as what God's Word says, we are dead in our trespasses and sin, and that there is none who does good, no, not one. You see, Christianity as a culture is comfortable, isn't it? It really is. I mean, yeah, it has its moments. Don't get me wrong. 
And I've lived many of them through the years. But in reality, church culture offers a lot. You know, a biblical lifestyle apart from Christ, even if you just have a biblical lifestyle, there's, it's not a bad way of life. Believe me, plenty of people do it and live this way. It has friendships available. It has social activities. Some people are just merely attracted to clean living. It offers clean living. People who seek this can be quite comfortable in a church. Modern Christianity, we have our own style. We have our own fads. We have our own music. We have our own books. We have our own TV networks, our own TV shows. The Hallmark Channel's accepted. You get to watch Christmas in July. It's driving me crazy. But you see what we see? We see, we all laugh. We're like, yeah. Like, people are like, yeah, Hallmark Channel. Like, because it's accepted. We have this, I don't know what the word is I'm even looking for. Culture. We have a way of living. We have, oftentimes, it's a safe place for common political and societal views. And it's, this can be scary. Why? Because we're very easily, we can fool ourselves. This truth remains that it always has. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 30. Those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. See, Christianity changes is more than culture. It's more than a lifestyle. But yet oftentimes it's easy to fall into this trap and because it, it works. If you want to choose Christianity and churchyism, I made that word up, it's pretty good. If you want to choose that, it can work for you. Jesus warns, of, uh, warns us of this very thing in the passage that we're here. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of the sermon, at the very end, he says this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So today, again, I'm taking on the impossible, trying to cover a whole bunch of truth in the Sermon on the Mount, really the first 11 verses. And when I wrote that, I've, later on I got to the point where like, we're just going to get to the first one. And then we'll just continue on in the weeks, months to come as I get the opportunity to preach. But let's read Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward, and your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In this set of verses... We see these truths, and this is what I want to talk about today. The Beatitudes reveal and describe 
the inner character of those who are members of God's kingdom. The Beatitudes reveal and describe the inner character of those who are members of the kingdom of heaven. We just read these verses and we saw this. The first and last Beatitudes begin and end with this. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One commentator describes this as a stylistic device called an inclusion, meaning the first beatitude and the last beatitude are showing that everything in between and everything in the beatitudes are about the kingdom of heaven. These 11 verses, they reveal our hearts. They reveal the character of a true kingdom dweller. This is the true heart of a child of God. You know, if a person relies on a cultural test to, to, to determine their spiritual condition, it's going to be fallible. It'll be up to the rules of man, or it'll be up to their own rules that they want to have, that maybe they created. If a person determines their spiritual condition based on a doctrinal confession, or a creed, or proclaiming that I'm some sort of ism, or an ist, That's not necessarily bad, but a confession or a creed or, of accept, or even acceptance of proper theology does not mean you are born again. One time I was listening to a message by um, a guy named John Gerstner who was R.C. Sproul's professor. And he had said at Princeton there are people who have studied the Puritans and have studied the scriptures and they flat out came to conclusion intellectually that the theology that many of us hold to is absolutely proper and good. And he says, and yet I still reject it. This person could spew and recite and know and proclaim the theology of the Puritans and of the church. And yet there were, he would flat out look you in the eye. He said, this professor would look us in the eye and say, I do not believe it. But this is what proper Christians should believe. This is proper theology. I have known people who have proper theology and they are in prison today. Tragically. Some of the best theologians I know who knew the languages did not have a heart change. Now, is any of this bad? Of course not. Is it good to study God's word? Absolutely. Is it good to know the languages? Please do. I'm so thankful for Pastor John that he knows the languages and he goes and he dives into God's word. Please don't hear me wrong at all. Theology needs to be good. But if we use this and say, my theology is perfect in our own mind, which, boy, that's kind of a dead... Mm. <laughs> We're not going to be perfect. We talked about last week. When are we completed? At the end, when we're with Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians thinks all these things will pass away, right? But we'll know, we'll see Christ, and we'll, then we'll be right. We do our best to be right, absolutely. That's why we study God's word and we love it. But mere perfect theology alone does not mean you're born again. You see, the Beatitudes here, Christ just opens up and he unloads. This reveals our true spiritual state. Christ's words are a test of our spiritual life. True followers of Christ will have something of each of these uh, eight Beatitudes present in our lives. Now, I'm not talking about perfection, but I'm talking about the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to have a posture of holiness and Christ-likeness. See, these truths that we just read are continually backed up in the whole of Scripture. 
read the letters of Paul, read, the, read 1 John, read Peter. These truths are all over the place in the, in the New Testament and the Old Testament. These truths are indicators of genuine faith. So the Beatitudes, they are going to reveal our heart. Now, we're not going to be, even attempt to fully dissect these today. And I hope this will be a, a springboard for you for further study, and we will get to them someday as God is, is good. But first, a quick de def definition. Blessed. So can we just get this out of the way right here? Blessed does not mean happy. Now, some translations have allowed the word happy to be used, but happiness is, obje is subjective, isn't it? It's based on circumstances. Happiness comes and goes. Doesn't it? You ever been asked about your job? Hey, you like your job? Are you happy in your job? Some days you answer, yes, I love my job. It's been great today. Job is good. I love my job. I hope I never leave. A week later, someone can ask you the same question. Are you happy in your job? No. Why? Crummy customers. My boss. My coworker. I got to get out of here. I'm, I'm renewing my LinkedIn right now. <laughs> the search is on. See, Jesus is not stating a feeling here. He's making a statement about what God thinks of them. Blessed or blessed is a positive judgment by God upon his children. Scripture teaches this. See, this is the approval or it's the blessing from God. This is saying God approves of this. God approves of you. God approves of blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed be the God and Father, Ephesians 1, I'm just thinking of that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So yes, of course, being blessed by God, does it bring feelings of happiness? Yes. We don't have time to get into it, but I think a better word, and there's not, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with happiness, but is joy, contentment, peace. And yes, uh, uh, hey, uh, I'm telling you what, because of my Savior, there are times I am happy. I'm so thankful for Jesus. Happiness is a true good feeling, and it's a blessing from God. But the word is blessed. It's approval. We need to remind ourselves that at the core of blessedness, it's approval by God. And it's a profound declaration from God to us. You are approved. You are blessed. I always get a little nervous with human illustrations of how this really works. And, but I kind of imagine it to be this way. When you think of approval from God or you think of blessed, blessedness from God, um, being blessed, um, I, I think of it this way. And if it works for you, great. And if not, I apologize. I'm doing my best. Um, but I, I, in my office, I have a family picture hanging up from a happy vacation in our lives. It's not terribly old, but it's a little old now. Jack, our, my son-in-law, isn't in it, so the picture needs to get updated. So I think what it's saying is we need to take a vacation with everyone so we can take another good family picture. And uh, 
and uh, you know, get that up in the office. But when my clients or my reps come into my office, the, the photo's right there, front and center, and they say, oh, the fam, they, the family. Well, that's an open door. And so I take the time, whether they like it or not, because they're interrupting my day, just, you know, I mean, that's kind of how I feel. Um, just kind of joking. Kind of. But I bless my family when I get to talk about them. I show them the picture they're looking at. They ask about it. And I say, all right, let's do this without getting overly emotional. I bless my wife, the mother of my children, who's an awesome, and I tell them, she's an awesome librarian. You should see her in action with kids. You should see how she interacts with children who don't really know a whole lot of love. So I do that. Talk about Kelsey and her becoming a nurse. And I'm like, gosh. Sorry, you know I'm this way. And I really, I, I really, honestly, I really dislike it. But I, I can't help it. Um, it just happens. I, and how, how she's a nurse. Oh my goodness. I might skip over this real quick. But how she loves Hawaii, loves going to concerts with me. I talk about her husband, Jack. What a good guy he is, how blessed we are to have him. Don't tell him I said that. I like to keep a little tension there. I think it's good. I'm teasing, I'm teasing. I bless Emily and how she and I are alike in so many ways. Her love for theater, her desire to become a teacher. How we're both kind of on the edge emotionally often. I said both. I bless Katie May and how stinking smart she is. And how alike we are. She's the one who eats spicy food and seafood with me. We have a same sense of humor. We like Star Wars together. Now, is this bragging? Well, maybe in the world's eyes, but I don't view it that way. I view it as blessing and approving my family. I sit there and go, this is my family. This is why I have their picture there. I care for them. I love them. And see, what God, don't ever lose sight of this. God loves us. And when we are his children, and when we put our faith in Christ, this amazing, amazing blessedness comes upon us, and God doesn't look at us in any other way than blessed and approved. He says, ah, just like last week when he said, hey, I substituted for you. I died for you. I approve of you because of Jesus. And so when we come to this and we say he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed, approved are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, you're my child, the kingdom. I am the king. You are in it. And my kingdom is awesome. And my kingdom is eternal. My kingdom is forever. And you are my children. I approve. See, I'm just Ron. I'm just a husband and a father, but I approve of my family. I bless them. And this blessing and this approval from God, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, is the cry and the desire of every single true believer. And it allows us to push aside cultural Christianity to something so magnificent and so deep that we are different and the world just goes, whoa, this is more than a country club. This is more 
than a group that just gathers. There is something different. And we come in and say, yes, by the grace of God, we have the blessedness. We have the approval of God through Jesus Christ. And because of that, here's how we live. Not perfectly, but it is the desire of our heart to live this way. Which leads us to this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. First, poor in spirit is not a feeling of worthlessness. It's not this idea that you're of no value whatsoever. It is not the absence of self-worth. Proof of this, 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own. You have been bought with what? A price. There is no worthlessness in any of us. We have been bought by the blood of Jesus. And also, let me just say this. All creation, all, all men and women are made, even in God's common grace, in the image of God. So it is not worthlessness. Poor in spirit doesn't mean shyness. It's not this false humility, like one who will declare, you know, I'm a very humble person. It's not the one who is so low, so self-condemning that you know, and you've probably had conversations like this, that you know, they're just waiting for you like, I'm so terrible, I'm so awful. And they know that like, they're just, come on, build me up now. Oh no, you're not that way. You're the best. You have such wrong views of yourself. That's not poor in spirit either. What poor in spirit means is this. The word poor used here means to cower and to cringe like a beggar. It's the word used for the poor man, Lazarus, who sat outside the rich man's house and the dogs came and licked his sores. It means to have absolutely nothing. It is a deep, deep poverty. It's a deeper poverty than is even used in the word poor widow in the widow's might. You know why? She had a might. She had something to give. Poor in spirit are those who have absolutely nothing to give. It describes those who are fully 100% dependent on the giving of others. So poverty in spirit is this. This is the definition. And a good way to put it is this. Blessed are the beggarly, utterly poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are so drastically poor in their spiritual resources that they realize they must have help from other sources. It's the acknowledgement of a spiritual bankruptcy. It is the admittance of utter sinfulness and utter helplessness. It's realizing that we have nothing, absolutely nothing in ourselves to have the approval or the blessing from God. It admits, a, again, a full and 100% unworthiness. A good way of putting it is this. Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, our society rejects this truth. The world's going to declare this. Blessed is the man who is confident that he's always right. Blessed is the man who is strong. This is what the world says. This is the world's economy is so opposite. Blessed is the man who sees no need to ask for forgiveness. Blessed is the man who's in charge. Blessed is the man who's satisfied with himself. Blessed is the man who is rich, and so on and so on. We know this to be true. These are the broken characteristics that we oftentimes elevate. Our natural inclination and bend 
is to be self-sufficient and self-reliant in all things physical and spiritual. But you know what? Poverty of spirit is necessary for salvation. (coughs) The spiritually proud and self-sufficient who think that there's something within them that brings acceptance from God, they're fooling themselves and they're lost. We have nothing. We bring nothing to God for approval. So what does he do? He gives us everything. He gives us the cross. It's tragic that so many religions will say, oh no, you have this and this and this and this, and then, oh, the cross just makes up for what you didn't provide. No, you provide nothing. That's what scripture says. You're dead in your sins. Name one action a dead person has ever done other than decompose. Stink. Yep, there we go. That fits in with decompose too. Right? We bring nothing. We are spiritually poor. We can spiritually bring nothing. So God stepped in. You know, a salvation that says, oh, I'm not going to really worry about my sin? The first thing, confessing your sins and running to the cross because it's the cross that took care of sin and vanquished sin and death. He gives us everything and that everything is Jesus. God pours out his grace to the spiritually bankrupt. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. Why? So that no one would boast. Look, I know my heart apart from Christ. If I brought something to the table, I'd boast. So would you. Because we are so self-reliant. It's part of being dead in your sins is like, I got it taken care of. But we come, we come to Christ empty and we never outgrow the first beatitude. Being poor in spirit, it kills self-righteousness. Being poor in spirit, it allows us to have a humble orthodoxy and a humbleness in our doctrinal positions. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. Ephesians 2, we talk about it so much, it's just an awesome section of scripture. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. This is the truth now. That's why it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, ultimately, will we be there forever? Yes, but even now, this is the truth. In Christ, he has raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We bring nothing. We gain everything in Jesus Christ. I want to close with the words from an old hymn. And I hope that this truth, just allow it to meditate on it this week. Realize the greatness and the goodness of God, that everything comes from him. I close with this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, 
Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul to the fount I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We bring nothing. Blessed are the poor, the beggars, the destitute in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just scratch the surface, but there's a lot to dig in there, isn't there? Well, let's pray, and we'll have a blessed Sunday. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us. And Father, I, I know we just barely got, got into this. Oh, but Father, we thank you that we have the blessing and approval from you because of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you that you didn't leave us to ourselves because if you had done so, we would never make it. The chasm's too wide. Our death, we are unable to awake ourselves into life, so we needed you, and we continue to need you as we press on and continue to live lives that glorify you. So, Father, allow us as individuals, and then, Lord, allow us as a church to become a people who embrace the truth that we are nothing, that we bring nothing, but oh, may we brag and worship and proclaim, but what we do have is Jesus Christ, and he is enough. It's in his great name we pray, amen. Thank you.